0: Visit planparenthood.org/future to learn more and support their cause.
1: Okay. All right, we good? We're in the money. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Box Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias here with Ezra Klein and Sarah Cliff. We got our Kanye in on Friday. We've got another special midterms episode coming for you tomorrow. Uh, But today we wanted to get serious, get real, talk about the big picture, talk about the climate change and the IPCC report.
2: Ezra, what does IPCC stand for? Oh, I I genuinely did not prepare for that question.
3: <laughs> you prepared for the segment so I, I looked, well. I looked, I yeah.
2: looked, so, I looked so deeply into this report. I like found out who wrote He's it.
1: He's got this huge stack. I've got Wait, this whatever. huge I, stack of papers. You Intergovernmental like in panel on climate change. change. Well, that makes sense. God damn
2: it! Wow. You, you really, you've really <laughs> destroyed my authority even before we begin. Here. Okay, you're done. All right. So let's talk about what what's going on in this report. So back when they were negotiating the Paris Climate Agreement, there was a kind of interesting fight that broke out over what the world's Target for climate change should be the generally accepted number is two degrees Celsius, which is I think like three and a half, 3.7 degrees Fahrenheit, roughly. And a lot of countries, particularly small island countries, but about fifty countries that are unusually climate vulnerable, they came forward and said two degrees Celsius isn't an okay target. Like two degrees Celsius means we are underwater. And the target should be 1.5 degrees Celsius, which it's worth saying, and we will say this later, like we're not on track to meet either of these goals. But they came forward and said that the global target here is calamitous for them. And so there was a strange compromise reached where the target remained 2 degrees Celsius. But – there was like an extra target created. You know, like what would be really great is if we could hold it to 1.5 degrees. And so as as part of that, the IPCC was directed to produce a report on 1.5 degrees of global warming, which again is lower than what we've generally been estimating. There's actually not been that much research on and discussion of the 1.5 degrees Celsius target. So this report, written and edited by 91 scientists from 40 countries, analyzing more than 6,000 scientific studies. So like what you're seeing here is a like international scientific community consensus, and it finds a couple of things. First, the warming up to 1.5 degrees Celsius would incur $54 trillion in damage— And if it goes up to two degrees, that goes up to $69 trillion in damage. By the way, if it begins going up above that, if you begin to get into that three degrees, three and a half degrees, like the numbers magnify. They get into the many hundreds of trillions of dollars of damage. Like you you begin to get into calamity that we actually don't really know how to effectively model. But the other thing that the report says, in addition to like – that there will be really, really serious warming problems from 1.5 degrees Celsius, is that we are in no way on a track to stop that. To have a reasonable chance of limiting warming to 1.5 degrees— Global CO2 emissions are now about 40 billion tons a year. They would need to be halved by 2030 and basically zero by 2050. And on top of that zero by 2050, we'd need to be doing probably carbon capture out of the atmosphere, which is incredibly unaffordable. Currently, like we are pulling out of the Paris climate agreements. So the big picture of this report is that – 1.5 degrees is really bad. The cost of it globally would be really severe. A lot of countries, for some countries, it'll be very manageable. For some countries, it'll be disastrous. I mean, it'll be the end of that country. And in order to stop it, we would have to be doing a World War II scale mobilization around climate that nobody's even considering. Right now, it's just as we're saying, we are on track for three, three and a half degrees Celsius of warming. So not just the two degrees, but significantly higher than that and into the range where our modeling begins to break down because the amount of damage we're doing to to the global atmosphere is just beyond what we have enough experience to say confidently what will happen in it. So this is like a scary report. One of the just odd things about it is it got a lot of attention, despite... I think that surprised a lot of people in the climate community. We've been on track to be above two degrees Celsius for so long that to have a report about 1.5 come out and get like be a real moment of mass attention was interesting. But it doesn't look like anything's going to happen out of it. Donald Trump said he'd really like to see these scientists who are saying this stuff because he doesn't believe them. So we're kind of where we were, but with more information about how bad it's going to get and how quickly.
3: Yeah, I feel like... I find climate a very difficult topic to cover because it fills me with like an existential dread that I can do nothing about. It's very different from like the area that I focus on, healthcare, where like good things happen and bad things happen, and like you see actual policy change in real time. Whereas climate seems to be an area like I just find very hard to think about the. And I think that's like kind of what is going on with this report and why it got the attention it did is because it came with this analysis of, you know, a massive amount of research and comes to, like, a very, like, stark conclusion. Like, I think the thing that jumps out to me about this report is that even the best-case scenario, which is one that we're not even, like, moving towards in any sort of realistic way, is is bad. Like, we're still talking about a lot of animals losing habitat. We're talking about sea rise. You know, we're talking about bad things happening. It's just, like, a magnitude of how bad is it going to get. And I think one of the things that makes a report like this, you know, hard for me personally to digest is it is hard to come out of this thinking okay, now what? Like what do we actually? Like what would we actually do if we thought like holy crap, this is a big problem. You know, I think CNN got a fair amount of mocking for running an article that was like, well, turn off your light bulbs and eat less meat and it's like very like well, nothing matters. Like, those things are not, you know, actually an individual's choices on that level, like, are not going to be the solution to this. I think one of the things that, you know, I've been reading a lot from our colleague, Dave Roberts, who writes a lot about climate. And, you know, one of the things he points out is those technologies you're talking about, you know, the carbon capture, the ones we think we need to use don't even exist yet, nor does the industry to create the technologies that, like, we're kind of banking on at this point. So, I find it a very difficult area to put a lot of my energy to thinking about because the consequences are both so significant and the things we would need to do to even get to, like, the least bad scenario are ones that we're not taking steps towards at this point.
1: Yeah, I don't know. I, I have a lot of thoughts about this, but one thing that, like, I have not loved the sort of, like, second and third degree like copy of a copy of a copy framing of what this report says or what the science says that I've seen out there. Like I've seen a lot of people, you know, who are like frustrated by political nonsense about Elizabeth Warren's Cherokee ancestry being like, also this week, like a report came out saying the world is doomed in 12 years. And it's important, I think, to not think that because Mm -hmm. the people who are saying that, I think their intention is to create a sense of urgency, but like their actual effect is to create a kind of like nihilistic despondency. And like I think the most important thing that this report says is that like each tenth of a degree of warming is more consequential than previous one. So that like anything that is done to reduce CO2 emissions is useful and constructive, right? And so like we should think of things that we can do to do that. And also that the degree of warming that's essentially baked into the cake is very consequential and is going to create a lot of problems for a lot of people. And we should think about what we can do to alleviate that as well. And I think that The temptation to sort of read this as a kind of like horror porn can be misleading. It can both get people like more upset than they need to be without actually doing anything and also create this kind of scenario where Marco Rubio had this like – it really bugged me. Like he got a question about this and he's not Donald Trump so he doesn't like – hand wave off a scientific report. He said like clearly we have to do something for low lying areas cuz you know he represents Florida. But then he's like but I'm not going to destroy America's economy. And like what is Marco Rubio actually actually going to do? And the answer is like Marco Rubio is not doing anything.
2: Right? And like what he should do is something. Destroying America's economy would I agree be a uh be a strange response but, but, to this but, 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 I mean,
1: you, you know what I mean? So it's like, the <laughs> like world, that wouldn't help. For, for better or worse, right? Like notwithstanding the desires of people who work in the hard sciences, like the world is just not going to enact a crash 12-year program to cut CO2 emissions in half. Like there's no way. There's no mechanism through which that could happen. There's no political consensus about it. There are no tools there. And so if everything— just sort of gets framed on like, should we take the output of a, a policy dynamic that starts with low lying Pacific Islands saying, two is too much for us. And then you go to scientists, you're know, like, what do you need to get 1.5? And then they come back and they're like, what you need is a global scale World War II type mobilization. And then you hand that over to politicians and they're like, No, we're not going to do that. And then we do nothing at all. That's very bad to me. Like, I feel like we are landing not just, like, science, but, like, politics-wise in a bad place about this that then becomes about,
2: like, Shifting. I think that's right. I have complicated feelings in this space, and I want to make sure we don't just completely end up on the, in this strange meta conversation about like how should one react to this report. There was a, a, a I thought a actually thoughtful piece in Vice about climate change edgelords, lords, uh-huh. which oddly enough tracked this tendency back to me because a number of years, I think back in 2014 when Vox was young, I wrote some piece like like. We're screwed. Uh And it was like seven reasons why we're not going to keep the two degree um, – keep warming to two degrees. And the guy writes that you know, like in the piece, like the thing I began talking about in there was managed failure. And the reason I have complicated feelings about this tendency about like to very carefully architect how much hope you respond to these reports with is that I do think journalistically there is an imperative to describe the world as it is. I think it is important to say not that we're doomed because we're not. And certainly if you live in America, you're not doomed. I have a real problem with the strain of comedy. It's like the world is going to become uninhabitable. The world – there's no evidence in my view that the world is going to become uninhabitable. Like that is not what we're looking for towards. But hundreds and hundreds of millions of people in Bangladesh could be displaced.
1: But that's what like, I mean though. Like you have and, to say what the report Exactly. That, says. That's what
2: I'm saying. And so one of the things that I think is a, the real important thing is like – I think that we are currently on track for a really terrifying kind of failure. And it should be said, this happens in life all the time. We let tens of millions of people in America be uninsured. We have global extreme poverty. We're constantly failing against a baseline of what we could be and I think morally speaking should be doing. But there's a question of like how well we fail, how seriously we fail. And and again, like I think that the value of the support is showing – but there's these massive scaling differences between 1.5 degrees Celsius, 2 degrees, 2.2 and 2.5, 2.5 and 3, and anything you do is really valuable within that space. I don't know, honestly, how you push action here. I think it is worth noting and is maybe a good thing to talk about here. You know, you go back 15 years in the climate conversation. You go back to 2008, and John McCain has a cap-and-trade plan in his Platform, And I always think of there being a real inflection point in the Republican Party where, as I remember it, and it's possible I misremember this, but but I don't think I am. Right after the election, so now the, the McCain-Palin ticket, which again had a cap-and-trade plan, is done. And basically the first thing Sarah Palin does in a serious way in politics right after that is she publishes an op-ed in the Washington Post attacking like Barack Obama's energy taxes – Right, she she publishes immediately an op-ed coming out against cap and trade plans, coming out against any kind of carbon pricing, and this is bad. I, I feel like it's hard to remember this, but Sarah Palin was looked at as like the leader of the Republican Party, which just turned out to be a little too early. Like Donald Trump became like the Palin esque leader of the Republican Party just a couple of years later, but she was being taken very seriously, and she sent instantly this incredibly strong signal this is not where Republicans would be going. So now Republicans, they pulled out of Paris. Um, It looks like Brazil, if they elect this far-right guy who they're probably going to elect, which my family's Brazilian, it breaks my heart. They're very likely to pull out of Paris. Like if nobody's abiding by Paris, like nobody else is going to abide by Paris like in the long run. So there is like a very difficult political problem here and it is not one that I feel anybody has a super clear approach to solving, save like a little bit, the technology and science space. Like, I know that um, CNN got made fun of for things like eat less meat, but meat is one of those things where it does have a huge carbon impact. And if the people who are trying to create plant-based meats or lab-based meats are able to do it very quickly, like, that could really help. And, like, Elon Musk gets a lot of shit these days for being nuts on Twitter, but pushing towards the electrification of things and, and in particular cars, which I think, like, he's put a lot of leverage on the um, whole industry through Tesla, like that stuff could really help. And so it's like the science side of this is moving forward pretty fast, but like the human will and politics side of it isn't. The one thing that I just – I do think is a really important thing to say is like this is not unsolvable. It is not an unsolvable problem. It is not even that costly a problem to solve although the coordination of it would be really difficult or at least to keep to manageable levels or relatively manageable levels. It is something we are not doing, not something we can't do and like we are not doing it for a lot of complex political reasons. I'm not sure that nihilism or despair or edgelordism is really the reason. I think that is a response to watching political systems on this fail again and again and again and not just fail but move in the wrong direction i'm not in a space where like i want to be super um indicting of that response like i think people getting upset on twitter is like i don't know whatever but there's like a real like political issue here like i think it's worth saying flatly like we are moving in the wrong direction and i do think like at the same time people are trying to be somewhat hopeful like that needs to be looked at in a serious way and dealt with in a serious way like It is like the politics of this are not going in the right way. They're going the wrong way. And I don't think people have like really good theories of how to reverse that.
3: Yeah, I think so. I guess the one place where you see policy possibly going in the right way is this ballot that Washington state has to create a state-based carbon tax, which would be the first in the United States. And it's – I mean it's one like I don't feel super – And again, I think it goes back to like how different climate policy is from a lot of different policies that we're thinking about and looking at and how global it is, where it would be a pretty huge deal for people in a state to not just a legislature, but actually people to vote for a carbon tax. It'd be the first time that would happen in the United States. um, And that's coming up on their ballot in just a few weeks from now. So, you know, on the one hand, that seems like a big advance, like maybe other states follow, but then it also kind of feels like a so what of it? You know, it feels very different from, like, you know, the trajectory of, like, the Affordable Care Act, for example, where Massachusetts passes this coverage expansion. Other people see it and think, like, hey, that's a thing we could benefit from. It it is very hard for me to see, like, like, there's no tangible outcome for the people of Washington state that they can feel, although there would be a quite tangible outcome if it was scaled up to an international level. And it feels very, you know, that seems like the one possible way that things move forward is in an area that's supportive of these policies. People, you know, vote for them, vote for politicians who would support these kind of things. But it's just like a lot of the technology we're talking about, it also seems like something that suffers from from a scale problem. Like it's not going to be, I, I don't know, maybe I, maybe I, there's something that will come out I also think of the it,
1: politics but. in some ways are in a more disturbing place than Ezra even made it out to be. And this Washington oh, thing good. is telling because something that you've had, right, there was once upon a time a kind of elite consensus, right, that something should be done about climate change. And so you had these like vague ads with Newt Gingrich and Nancy Pelosi. Oh, right, John, John McCain had a climate plan, right? So it was hazy and it wasn't going anywhere. And then it turned out that like when the pedal came to the metal, that like conservatives were going to defect from this. So – Something that happened as a secondary consequence of that is that the left, which has continued to push for addressing climate change, which is good, has completely subsumed the climate change issue under the like existing left agenda. And so like this Washington state plan, right, it's a successor to a plan that went down in 2016 and like what was proposed in 2016 was what I think – people would consider like a technically sound climate policy, which was like a a revenue-neutral carbon tax, and that went down to catastrophic defeat because progressive groups— Opposed it. It's a great, right. and
2: we'll put this in show notes. Dave Roberts had a great right. big piece on the the sort of strange coalitions that emerge, right? To because it. what they want
1: is this carbon tax
2: 2.0 proposal, which
1: does the carbon tax, but really just treats carbon tax as revenue policy. So now it finances a bunch of spending that a broad coalition of Washington state groups want, and that's great. I mean, look, I, I think that it may pass, it may not. It's doing way better than the other one, given the politics of Washington state, which is obviously more liberal than the average American state. Like, that's a reasonable way to do it. And particularly if Republicans won't buy in to carbon pricing policy, no matter what you do, then I don't know what else it is you're going to do with it. But like, that's a strategy that like, even in principle, you can't take that strategy to Oklahoma, right? Like, there aren't, strong progressive groups on the ground who have these big spending demands. And now you have Stephen Harper, former conservative prime minister of Canada. He's criticizing uh, the carbon pricing plan that Justin Trudeau has put in. And he's saying like, you know, you look what's happening. It's like the left just sees this as a revenue program. They're, They're trying to spend the money. And the US is a relatively low-tax society compared to the rest of the Western world. So, you know, we should price carbon and just treat it as extra revenue and and off to the races is I think a perfectly reasonable idea for us. But it's not like a scalable global solution. It's just – it's like ordinary partisan – politics and you see it on so many other issues of this right so like ezra like like you're a vegan right and like a strong believer in that on animal welfare grounds and so like also very interested in the climate implications yeah but i'm of that. also
2: a believer in it on environment i mean
1: no no, i mean sure but but i mean you but, can believe
2: in something for multiple reasons <laughs> you, simultaneously, you, you, you
1: absolutely can but i mean i think that what you have is that people who like some of the policy implications of coming so like I'm into urbanism and mass transit. So, like, I like to talk about that. But, like, people who have conservative person lifestyles just experience this as a culture war issue, right? That, like, people who want to bike to work and eat veggie burgers are like, everyone should bike to work and eat veggie burgers. But, like, they don't want to do that, right? And so, like, we're now not really talking in politics about climate change policy. We're talking about, like— how it is that yuppies like to live. But let me make the
2: other side of this case Um, and not the other side because what you're saying is true, but I have two addenda on it. One is that Again, like it wasn't the left that defected here, right? Right, Gingrich defected. McCain ultimately defected. Like like there was a whole – like the right made this a culture war issue long before, you know, some of the things – No, were I mean that's how it like, went, like, it right? Just, it's like, like, like
1: the, the right pulled but, out of the deal and so now so this is where we that are. that
2: created this new problem um, or not a new problem. But I think if you were going to get any action on climate change, it created this question, which is if the left held power, would it prioritize climate change? Would that be the thing it did as opposed to um, Medicare for all or free college or all these other things? And, and very crucially – and I think like, this is part of what I was writing about back in 2014. Very crucially, the hard part about climate change is the ways to solve it. You are asking people to absorb pain now, to solve a problem that will mostly affect people in the future and even more than that, people who don't live here. It is not to say before I get a lot of emails that it will not affect people who live here or that it's having no effect now, but this is an existential question for like a lot of countries and a lot of people, poor people who live in coastal areas and like it is not an existential question for middle-class Oklahomans in 2025. So like that's a very hard political problem. So what you need to do is you need to create things that create some kind of incentive to prioritizes up the chain. Like there needs to be a reason that you would price carbon first even though it's a very difficult, arguably very, not just arguably, it's an unpopular thing to do. And I think something interesting about where they're going with this in Washington State, I think something interesting about some of the things that you're bringing up here about the way it ties to other things that people want is that there needs to be in like politics some sugar, right? Like things get prioritized because they're going to have some payoff that is going to allow you to maintain power in the next election. If, a carbon tax became the way the left decided it would pay for Medicare for all, say, like and it felt good about that and it was just going to use um, a reconciliation bill to do that if it got power in 2021. Like that would make sense, right? If, if you had that coalition, like it, it would not necessarily make a ton of sense as a policy. And in fact, it's a little bit unstable because like, ideally you're sure. bringing carbon down, but it would pay for some of it for some amount of time. Like you could imagine something like that happening. I think the reason this is important is that absent that bipartisan space where you're – both sides have created an elite consensus that they're just going to like muscle through because this is important. And like sometimes the political system has to do things that are hard in this way. It could be like an analogy to deficit reduction um, deals, which we've had many of over the years, but they tend to work best you know, when, when the parties come together on them. But they're paying um, for some kind of like hazy future payoff. In the absence of that, this is going to have to be attached to vehicles that people are going to prioritize more highly. And so like while all the things you're saying about are true about this being a very second-best approach to the politics, I do think it is better than this sort of alternative which is – this exists on the left as its own thing and pure pain but because like a pure pain policy is not going to be the thing that a tenuous democratic majority does first. It will just be the thing that they always talk about doing and it never happens.
3: I mean at the same time – so when you like mention this idea of like a – let's say it's like a Medicare for all financed by a carbon tax. When I think of how like how polarizing Medicare for all is and then you add in like what is now a like – I think like what people would see is like a partisan – pay for doing a a carbon tax, it just seems like the whole thing would be so incredibly vulnerable. Like, I do get, like, I totally, (laughs) like, I kind of actually think back to the episode we had last week, you know, talking about the future of the judiciary and, like, how you see that playing into decisions that are going to be made. And and I already would expect, like, if we had a Medicare for all, that would be aggressively attacked in the courts at the state level. In Congress, and then, if you have one that's financed by a carbon tax, like it feels like you're just setting both the policies up for, like really swift like attack and like breaking down
4: pretty in like, a very rapid succession. can we,
1: can we take a break and then come back to this?
4: Support for the weeds comes from not another politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy.
0: you can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit plannedparenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause.
2: So I think you're right. Like, you're right. Like, The baseline case here is nothing happens, right? Nobody does any of this. Like, I do not want to be the voice of optimism here. Like, I think this is bad. I heard Matt say earlier, and I think he's right, like, you want to think about, like, what might happen – the one way in which I think this stuff is possible, and again, not likely, right? Like if I were the political advisor, like not the policy advisor, but if I were like a hack political advisor to some president and like somebody in the room was like, let's do Medicare for all. And somebody else was like, let's attach it to a carbon tax. like, no, don't do that. <laughs> like among other things, like another thing that makes this hard is that it has very regionally disparate effects. And so both in the House and in the Senate, there are a lot of uh, representatives or, or, or legislators who might vote for say Medicare for all. but not for a carbon tax, right? Because like they represent Indiana. Like Joe Donnelly is like an easier Medicare for all vote than he is a carbon tax vote. I say that not specifically knowing Joe Donnelly's views on carbon taxes. But what I would also say is that we exist in a slightly peculiar political time where I think the traditional rules under which we're talking about this are not as applicable or don't appear to be as applicable as they previously have been. So one is we are suggesting here that there is like some level of tribalism that like (laughs) Medicare for all will reach that you like can nevertheless go above. And I'm not at all sure that's true. Like, I think, like, we're just maxing out every single time now. And so, like, the idea that, like, layering more things on it makes it— I mean, you could layer very unpopular things on it, which maybe a, a carbon plan is. But, like, we're there. Like, we're—like, you remember death panels. Like, you remember Obamacare. Like, the effort to do a compromise bill and what happened. You might have Obamacare. heard of Obamacare. Like, it's just, like, we're there. And the other thing that Republicans, I think, have really pioneered is just, like, Go fast, pass unpopular bills quickly, do it through reconciliation and like damn the consequences and see what happens. And like I'm not sure it's a great strategy like they're going to lose in the midterms. But, you know, the amount it looks like they're going to lose in the midterms is not historically unknown. And like, look, there's a good economy. So like they're like being kept afloat a bit by that. But I think it's possible that we're moving into a period where the way we legislate is like you try to get your side as excited as possible about the thing you're building. And you try to move as fast as possible and you accept that, like, things are going to be unpopular. Again, I don't think this is great. Like, I don't think where the American political system is going is great. But I also don't think, like, unchecked global warming is great or, like, the current healthcare consensus is great. And so I don't know. Like, I'm not I'm not here to tell you this is a good solution or that it, like, makes a ton of sense to me. But I— I do wonder a bit whether or not, you know, like they just passed Kavanaugh and he was very unpopular. Their tax reform bill was pulling in the 30s when they passed, in the 30s. Yeah. Like that's wild. They tried to pass their Obamacare bill and it was pulling in the 20s. It was sometimes pulling in the teens. So I don't know, like, if you could design something reasonably well that had, like, a not gigantic carbon tax, and maybe it's not for Medicare for all, right? Maybe that one's a little bit too weird of a thing. But it's, like, a carbon tax that is funding infrastructure development and, like, kind of greenish jobs right. this programs. this is the Green New Deal. Exactly. Like, I don't think that's crazy. And I think, like, a lot of people on the left would be really excited about it. And I think, like— like if you put it in even at a modest level and this actually – well, William Nordhaus just uh, okay. won the, the Nobel Prize in economics, not technically a no, you know, the whole That's thing. Right. Uh, but for talking about how to do, do carbon taxation, if you started – and there's a fight about his ideas because he would put it lower because he rates the future economic growth higher and – If you put in it at a low rate, you could theoretically dial it up a little bit easier over time when you had the power to do so or when effects of climate change were were getting worse and worse. So, like I agree that like the Medicare for all thing may be too jerry-rigged, but I do think the idea that you're gonna have to attach carbon pricing to something that is instantly like sellable that people are excited about. um, infrastructure, I think, being a very plausible idea, because like then it doesn't look totally nuts. Like you could be thinking about how to do infrastructure in an environmentally sustainable way. And so like the sell of it makes some sense. I think that's the only possible way this happens.
1: So, I I think it's important to come back to the international dimension of this, right? Because it is both true that, like, the most dire consequences of climate change will not be in the United States, at least not mostly. And also true that U.S. policy is not going to be decisive in determining the future scope of emissions, right? So if you look at the United States and Europe, emissions are trending downward in both the U.S. and Europe. I mean not at a rapid enough clip but like definitely downward. Cars are becoming more fuel-efficient. Renewable energy is growing. Natural gas has lower emissions than coal. And so like reductions are happening, If you look at China, right, China has more CO2 emissions now than the U.S. and Europe combined, and their emissions are still growing, right? The growth rate has slowed in China. India is quite a bit lower than the U.S. and Europe at this point, but they're growing quite rapidly. And so ultimately, like the question of efficacious climate policy is going to have to involve coordination between the big players and – On that level, like I think you have to say that like the Paris Agreement just didn't work. Like it didn't have enforcement mechanisms. It was very much built around a global consensus model that I think fundamentally doesn't make sense. Like if you imagine – worldwide action on climate happening, right? It's going to start with some big core players, right? Like, say, Europe and Japan agreeing to do domestic carbon pricing and then applying some kind of punishment on countries that don't, right? Like a lost market access, which then gets, like, Taiwan and Norway and littler countries to come on board. And then, of course, you would need, like, domestic politics in the United States to work and bring the developing countries along. Something like that. But even like – even when like the best people were running things in the US, like they were basically nowhere on this aspect of the problem. I do think it's important to remember Nordhaus's point about the benefits of economic growth, right? Because if you described the state of the world as it existed in 1978 as like this is what the world could be like 40 years from now, right? And like as a science fiction exercise, people would find it horrifying. You know what I mean? Like billions more people in extreme dire poverty, like all kinds of awful, awful stuff, right? And that's because like the past 40 years of global economic growth have like done a lot of really good things for the world, right? And in the future, we're going to have all kinds of terrible problems because of higher sea levels and changed climate. But we are also going to have globally like many more resources to throw at things. And like a really morally urgent thing is to actually do something about some of these problems, right? Like I think probably a hard-nosed economic look at it like Nordhaus tried to give is going to tell you that like slowing the global economy in order to save a handful of Pacific island nations is not worth doing. But when you say it's not worth doing, what you mean is it would be cheaper and easier to rescue those people, right? And what we're on trajectory to do right now is not to like make a conscious choice to prioritize growth and use those resources in a helpful way, but just to Abandon people to their fates, right? And like that's really
2: bad and is a little bit separate from the carbon policy question. One thing I think this brings up is that – and it's something that I don't think we know how to model well, but, but Tyler Cowan had a good piece on it. It's something I've been thinking about a lot is there is a lot of political fragility that is right. downstream of displacement. And I think a lesson I'm taking from the past couple of years – we have a global refugee crisis right now. There are a lot of people who are displaced and what that has done is destabilize the entirety of the European Union it has very arguably destabilized america i think there's a good argument that donald trump given how close that victory was that it reflects things that happened around syria and refugee crises and you know i think you could argue both ways but 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 i think it's entirely possible certainly the immigration issues in the eu led to brexit i think something we've been seeing is that our political systems like global political systems are not very robust to climatological disturbances and like what follows from them. Now, I'm not saying that everything that has happened has been climate, right? There is an argument about whether or not Syria is driven by drought and whether that drought is driven by climate, and, and I don't want to adjudicate it here. What I want to say is that it is clear that things like that will be driven by climate in the future. Like that is what we can say. Certainly when you're looking at two and three degrees Celsius warming, like you will have a lot of drought. You will have a lot of food shortage. You will have just a lot of things in upheaval and our systems do not respond to upheaval quickly. And what will happen if you have hundreds of millions of Bangladeshis displaced and just something that I think is a a real question when you're thinking about those economic growth projections and and, and how to think about them is – What are we going to do about instability? Um, That is something that we don't know how to manage well. It is something that like we have trouble tracking back, right? What ends up happening is that you have a lot of stress on the system and then like a civil war breaks out. It's like the war is not about drought, but it's about drought. It's caused by drought. And that is one of the pieces of it that I really worry about because I just think you have to look around the global system and say like, These things are weaker than we had hoped, right? And you don't have to go back far to your point about the 70s, right? You know, go back 40 years before that and you're in the World Wars era. right? So now if you had a world war that involved China and Russia and America or a couple others, like you have a lot of nuclear weapons lying around. And so things could get bad and – this is something that I don't hear people talking about because I don't even know that there is a good way to talk about it. But the – when you look at how poorly our systems are responding to relatively modest levels of instability and conflict right now and elevated levels of immigration and displacement, if you imagine like turning all those dials way up, I – don't think you should be super optimistic. I mean that that is a part of it that really scares me because that also is a part that has the possibility of runaway consequences where like things begin escalating on top of themselves and we don't model that effectively. Right. I mean I, I think especially Europe and India
1: yep. um, given their geographies, right? I mean there's some sense in which you could say, OK – An optimal amount of warming is probably to allow a little bit more warming and to let people from the Sahel region of Africa move to Canada where there's plenty of space and where it would be nice if it was warmer. But then you think like, okay, in the real world, is that what's going to happen? Are we going to have tens of millions of African peasants resettled in Canada? And like obviously that's not what's going to happen. They're going to try to cross the Mediterranean Sea and enter southern – Europe and since it's very clear that citizens in southern Europe also don't want that outcome it's like they need to do something to get ahead of that and like Bangladesh refugees coming into into India with religious instability is is another big big issue there and the united states i think is relatively insulated yeah. from a lot of these consequences If the problem were that the United States was just being a laggard due to our combination of dysfunctional politics and relative insulation from the problems, I would say the solution is that the international community needs to sanction the United States much more heavily. Uh, What's striking is that the countries that are more in the crosshairs are like also not really – Doing that much, right? I would like the United States to be a world leader on climate, but honestly, like you can see why we aren't. But like the countries that should be the leaders need to lead more because somebody is gonna have to push
3: us. So I do want to acknowledge a lot of this is going to affect areas outside the United States, but I don't want the conversation to come off as you know, the fact that we are totally insulated from this. Over the summer, I read a really interesting book um, called Chesapeake Requiem that looks at this island in the Chesapeake Bay that is essentially disappearing in real time, that has just seen itself shrinking and shrinking and shrinking. It's home to a lot of crab fishermen, and um, and journalist Earl Swift wrote this really excellent book about basically what it is like to live in a place that is disappearing. One of the interesting things he kind of comes across there is that the politics of this place are actually quite— conservative, that when he talks to people about, like, well, why is your island disappearing? It's more, this is just the natural way of the world. Like, it's just something that's been happening from before we talked about climate change the politics. Definitely don't line up towards the type of things that might, you know, reverse sea level rise there. And it seems like this island just isn't going to exist in the future. So, and at this point, it's home to a relatively small population of people. But, you know, all this is just to say that this isn't a totally foreign thing like this is happening to people who live in the united states and it seems like we've just kind of made this decision with a lack of decision making of deciding you know this island in the chesapeake like it's not worth saving and the people there like they are pretty fucking angry that like the government has basically decided their island is not worth saving
2: but what's i think interesting? i think the idea of like the decision to not make a decision Is just such an important concept in politics. Like, that is like, we've decided to make a decision not to make a decision. Um, Which is a decision. It is a decision. And like, we will pay the cost of it. Like, there's like a a very big premium on on top of that. Right. I mean, I just want to be clear. I mean, when we say the United States is insulated, relatively insulated. We we we
1: mean that the people who live on that island aren't going to drown and die. Right? Like they're going to move someplace else. Like they are American citizens. They have that option to go. The United States is a large landmass. It has space for them. Now, part of what's striking about this is you can say like, well, we decided not to do anything. But there were like a couple key tipping point moments, right? So like the state of Florida is – very exposed to climate change in a way that most of the country isn't because it's surrounded by water. It's very low. It has high water table. It's hit by a lot of hurricanes. And like for something to happen, the stakeholders in a place like that would have to be All in on doing something. And for a time, that state's Republican governor was interested in doing something on climate change. But he lost a Senate primary to Marco Rubio. He was driven out of the Republican Party. He's now a House Democrat. Their current governor, Rick Scott, is firmly opposed to doing anything at all. He's polling very well against Bill Nelson. The state of Florida has become more conservative over the past 15 years. And like Donald Trump, you know, There was a lot of talk about Trump and the Rust Belt and white working class there, but in places like Florida that had a lot of non-college-educated white people, even though there was never an industrial base in Florida, but demographically, a lot of Midwestern people, you know, have moved there. There was the same, like, big surge toward Trump voting. And, you know, I mean, a basic problem in politics is that, like, if the people most directly impacted by a negative trend are not only like they're not going to be active in demanding a solution, they are going to be active in demanding that it not be solved. Like that's a tough one. You know, you can look at the leadership that like Jeff Merkley and Bernie Sanders have tried to provide on climate change type issue. But like honestly, they're going to do fine in Vermont.
2: Right. You know, it's like... But one other just dimension of this, and and this is true in the United States too, because I mean, we should say like some people here will drown and die, right? We will have more hurricanes. And we sometimes, particularly in very poor areas, do not handle those hurricanes well. In Puerto Rico, I'm not going to get into the question of like whether or not that hurricane specifically is climate change related, but like a lot of American citizens drowned and died or died because of the aftermath of like all of their electrical systems being destroyed. And... Climate change everywhere, like globally, but also in the U.S., it hits the poor hardest. And when we say that there are a lot of people who don't want to do anything about it – like it is true that Rick Scott lives in Florida, but he will be fine. Like he will be completely fine because like he's rich. And like a lot of the decision makers on, on all sides of this – and like this is true for a lot of different issues. They will be fine. The people who are going to get hurt and the people in some cases are going to die are poor. And it's like like climate change like everything else, like it comes for the poor. It's like it in a million different ways. Like I think we are in a very immoral place on this issue. One thing I just want to note because I don't think we have time to do it today, but we will get emails about it. Like geoengineering is something we should do a future weeds on. I'll just say shortly like when I look into it, I am just struck by how to imagine a political – a global political system that can make the decisions around geoengineering is to imagine a global political system that probably is able to make the decisions around climate change. But I often entertain the thought of if it became cheap enough and capable enough, some countries going rogue on it, if they really – like if they were really in trouble. Like you could imagine there being a political tipping point in some countries where all of a sudden it's like, yeah, like this is existential now. We're going to do something. It's like are we going to invade places to stop them from blasting sulfates into the air? Like this stuff would be pricey. I'm not sure it's actually doable. But I just like – the thing I want to flag for a future discussion is that the geoengineering solutions – they do not solve the political problems. They rely on solutions to the same political problems that the other solutions rely on, and like that is the thing that we are having trouble imagining. All right, let's do another break. Do a paper.
3: All right, so we got a healthcare paper this week. We what? have whoa the effect of disenrollment from Medicaid on employment, insurance coverage, health, and healthcare utilization. Hot off the NBER presses from Tom DeLear at Georgetown. And so this is a paper that looks at this um, kind of natural experiment that happened in Medicaid a little over a decade ago that a number of other papers have looked at as well. Back in 2005, Tennessee was for a while running a a very generous Medicaid program. It was allowing people actually all the way up to almost middle income to enroll in the Medicaid program if they had been denied coverage outside the market turns out this is very expensive. So in 2005, they decided to end this program. And you kind of have this natural experiment. And this is Phil
1: Bradison. This is
3: Phil Bradison. Yes. Under a democratic administration, they say, oh, it turns out the people who signed up for this program have incredibly high health care needs. So 170,000 adults are disenrolled from the Medicaid program. And there's this question about kind of what happens next along two dimensions. One do these people get health insurance? And two, do these people get jobs? Because you can see two theories of it. You know, I think there's the more conservative theory that, well, if they don't have this welfare program, they're going to go find a job, that they'll start working because they want health insurance. And then there's, you know, the other possible outcome that, you know, these people are just out of luck, that they're uninsured, they weren't getting employment before Medicaid, that you weren't seeing it as a kind of substitution effect. So this new DeLear paper, it, it finds that after the Medicaid contraction in Tennessee that you saw an uninsured rates rise by 5 percent compared to adults in other southern states, they find no evidence of an increase in employment rates in Tennessee following the disenrollment. In other words, people didn't feel the need to go get a job to get insurance. They just lost insurance. So I should say I was reading this paper and I realized, oh, this is you know in direct contrast to another paper that came out a few years ago about this Tennessee situation that was led by Craig Garthwaite an economist at Northwestern who you know I really respect and have talked to a number of times so you know I talked to him about this paper before taping the show and his take on it is that it's really complicated right now there is a policy question that is very active of what happens when you kick a bunch of adults off of medicaid because a lot of states are thinking about kicking a lot of adults off of medicaid and it turns out and we can get into some of the nuance here we don't fully know at this point. There's Craig's paper, which suggests that some people actually do get jobs, that you do see somewhat of an employment response. There's this new paper that suggests people don't go out and get jobs. The difference between the two honestly relies a lot on their data source and their methods, which are a little bit different. But, you know, when I talked to him, you know, he said, you know, I don't mean to be cheeky, but the fr- this is further evidence that this is all very complicated.
2: So uh, I have a couple thoughts on this. Um, <laughs> they also resolved down to it's complicated. But two things. One is that remembering way back in time to 2010 when we were talking about the Affordable Care Act and whether it would pass, one of the pictures Republicans painted was like a jobs like nightmare, right? This was going to destroy the American economy. Like nobody was going to work. Like there's going to be huge unemployment. Everybody's going to be put on to part-time labor to get out of the employment. I mean like over and over and over again. Like a lot of the case made against that was jobs. And it's like listen to Donald Trump, right? Like There are a lot of jobs in the country right now. Unemployment is very, very low. For the first time ever, we have in in the data more um, job listings than job seekers. Like, whatever the effect of healthcare expansions is on labor supply, it is, like, quite swamped by other things that are happening in the labor markets, which I just think is notable, because I think this is what the kind of, like, set of debates in this paper show is, like, the Garthwaite results seem big to me, and the fact that they're not robust to, like, giving them different time series in the same data set or, like, tweaking them in different ways. It doesn't mean they're not true on some level. It doesn't mean there's not a labor response. I just, like, it's clearly – I think it's pretty clearly not a big one. And that's sort of where um, Deliric comes down. But I want to note something else because, like, this was a debate we had, again, back during the Affordable Care Act. Because the Congressional Budget Office came out with this paper showing that it would reduce labor supply. And the reason it would reduce labor supply is primarily people retire earlier. Without the need to work in order to get health care, people might enjoy a little bit more of like the last chapter of their lives not being in a job they don't want to have. And I think we have such a discourse in this country that like work is always good, like anything that increases the supply of work is good and anything that reduces it is bad, that I think that we have trouble talking about this sometimes. I mean there's a question about how much of the data is looking at childless adults and how much isn't and like that's a complicated piece of this. but. There are a lot of good reasons somebody may not want to work. Like you may be a single mother with a child who has special needs or you may be trying to go to school or you may just like not have found the correct job. And like having been laid off from something, you want to wait to find a good fit as opposed to take something way below and now be on this like lower ladder track. and. It's not to say that like we should not in general be trying to increase labor supply, but we should not be heedlessly trying to do it. And using not having access to medical care as the tool with which we do it seems to me to be incredibly cruel. I mean like we could set up a policy where if you didn't work, um, we threw your children in jail. And like mm. that would definitely increase like the incentives people felt to go out and find jobs. But like that would be a bad po- – like we shouldn't do that. But I, I want to I triple down on this point because <laughs> – no, because I mean this is very policy relevant, right? Because if you
1: look at the Medicaid waivers that are coming down the pike from Republican governors, if you look at the changes to SNAP that congressional Republicans will enact I think if they do well in the midterms. And if you look at um, – what's her name, Sarah? The Mary new- Mayhew. Mary Mayhew who's, who's coming in. To run federal
2: Medicaid from Maine, this is a big. Just real quick, Maine. In case like people think of Maine, they think of Susan Collins. Has had um, Paula Page for two terms now, who's an extremely Trumpy governor,
3: who is refusing to expand Medicaid despite a ballot initiative Trevor gone much a, and gone much, <laughs> yes. much
2: further than that, and like has like made like their Social Security net into like a right wing wonderland of like just unbelievable cruelty. Right. So there are a lot of individual pieces to this, right? But there is an emergent
1: worldview in the American conservative movement that a big problem in the United States is that our labor force participation rate is too low and that the solution to that problem is to make the welfare state less generous, right? And this is a poor idea. Like, If you want to make an argument that the U.S. labor force participation rate is too low, I think a pretty good, you know, stab at that argument would be to say, look, our labor force participation rate is lower than what you see in Canada or Australia. It's lower than what you see in Japan or Korea, and it's lower than what you see in northern Europe, right? So, okay, that's good prima facie evidence that there's something wrong here. The American welfare state is not more generous than the welfare state in any of those places, right? Now, it's not to say there's maybe some level of, like, immiseration that we could drive people to that'll get our numbers up to, like, Sweden-Denmark levels, but that's obviously not how they did it in Sweden and Denmark. It's, in fact, pretty clear how they did it in Sweden and Denmark, which is that by providing more robust childcare services and put more women at work, Japan, even more instructively, their welfare state is, like, a little bit more generous than America's, but not that different. But they have ran for the past five years, very strong macroeconomic conditions. And it's also something you've seen in the US that like three, four years ago, there were like all kinds of takes about like why is labor force participation down? But just like keeping interest rates low and growing the economy has brought it up like a lot, right? And in a weird way, you know, if Obama was president, Republicans wouldn't even want to hear this. But like now that Donald Trump is president, it's like you could just like take a victory lap. Like strong economic conditions cause more people to want to go out and get jobs. And one thing we've seen is there was this incredible moral panic about the disability insurance program. And disability insurance enrollment has fallen a lot over the past four years without any of these proposed reforms being implemented because as it's become harder for places to hire workers, it's been easier for workers who have some kind of borderline physical incapacity to find either a job that's suitable to them or an employer who's willing to accommodate them. It's raised the cost of discrimination, so, so on and so forth. And so it's just like even if it's true that like making Tennessee like a land of no health insurance would boost employment marginally, like this, there's, there's no big picture reason to think this is a good idea.
3: And I think Talking to Craig, who's the author of the paper that did find an employment effect, one of the things he, like, hammered home with me, which is often something you hear from economists, is he's like, no one looked at our confidence intervals. They were giant on that paper, which, you know, fair enough, (laughs) great, economists. Um, But he was saying, you know, everyone focused on this point estimate. And one of the things we were saying there, you know, is – and he was like, well, maybe on the weeds you will talk about confidence intervals. And And here we are. Here we are talking about that. (laughs) Is that even there, you know, he's the guy who found this and he still says, you know, look, it's complicated – it's different depending on you measure it. And I think one of the things, you know, that is really difficult is that the effects are really heterogeneous, that people respond to losing Medicaid very, very differently depending on the situation that they are in. You know, someone who has some kind of expensive health care condition, someone who has kids, for example, is probably going to respond very, very differently to losing their Medicaid than, you know, a single adult. That these are kind of often can be broad brush policy interventions that lead to very different outcomes. And that's one of the reasons it's so hard to study, is that people have a lot of unobserved, unrecordable preferences around health insurance, that it is hard to get to that granular level given the data sets that we have. And I think that's why you see, you know, these different people studying the exact same moment in the history of Tennessee Medicaid and coming to some different conclusions about, like, what that actually meant for Medicaid recipients. The other...
1: Lesson here, though, specific to Tennessee, is about the fragility of trying to design programs that take care of people who fall through the cracks without, like, doing anything about where the cracks come from. Because, like, basically, like, the reason they did this in Tennessee is that they were spending way too much money because they'd taken on the hard cases, right? And it's the kind of thing that, like, it must have sounded like a good idea, right? Like we're going to help the people who need help, but we're not going to disrupt things for other people. And it wound up not really working, right? And like that's what has like always been the impetus for like real universalism that like, yes, the like surface level price tab is high. But the per person price tab is reasonable, which is like not the situation that they had in Tennessee, and like I don't know, it's like both this Medicaid contraction seems to me like like a bit of a human tragedy, but also like they didn't have really good alternatives. Yeah. All right, that's the weeds. Fantastic. Okay. Thanks to Ezra and Sarah. Thanks to everybody for listening. Come into the Weeds Facebook group and tell us about your favorite geoengineering ideas so we can talk about that in a future episode. The Weeds will be back tomorrow with a midterm special and then again on Friday. Thanks, of course, to our producer, Griffin Tanner. We'll see you tomorrow. Bye.